Christians have a weird relationship with doubt. Uh, a lot of times, I think we, we wrestle with doubt, we, we struggle with doubt, we have fleeting feelings of doubt, but we also create a culture in the church that doesn't make it easy to share doubt, makes it scary to talk about doubt. We're all supposed to be people who, are, who have great faith and, and to feel like you ha- don't have that much faith or you've, you have questions that you can't seem to get an answer to is a scary place. Um, and that's not how it should be in the church. We should be a safe place to explore doubt, but we struggle with that. Uh, I was um, earlier this year listening to a podcast uh, from, it, it, who knows who Rhett and Link are? Yeah, my family, we're fans of their show on YouTube. Um, and I had known that they kind of got their start in entertainment in um, college ministry when they, were, when they were younger. And they were devout followers of Jesus. And this spring, I ran across an episode of their podcast where they talk about how over the last number of years, they have walked away from their faith. They decided that, um, they, that they, weren't, they didn't believe anymore. The, 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 the idea of who Jesus was and their salvation and their, their following God that they had grown up in was just something that they let go of. And something really weird happened to me as I, as I listened to this podcast. I, I listened to them talk about all of the arguments, why they didn't believe in God anymore. And I thought, well, that's dumb. Those are stupid arguments. You guys, come on, you're smarter than that. But at the same time, I, I just got this really weird foreboding feeling of like, what if, what if they're right? What if, what if this foundational set of ideas that I've based my entire life on just isn't true? What if I've been just playing a game with my life and deceiving myself and leading a whole group of people astray? And honestly, it was kind of scary to even hear those thoughts come up in my head because I'm usually not very doubtful. And it really rocked me. It was in the middle of lockdown, so that was probably part of how out of sorts I was. But, but I, for about four weeks, and I know that's not a very long time, but for about four weeks, I was really wrestling with, like, do I, do I believe this stuff? Am I a Christian? If I'm not a Christian anymore, will I lose my job? <laughs> probably. And I worked through it, and I worked it out. But, but, I, but I say that because... I think, and I know from talking to some of you, and I think, I think thoughts of doubt come up in our hearts and our minds often, sometimes more than others, sometimes for different circumstances. And this morning, we're going to talk about doubt. So we're going to start in this passage in Luke. Luke is a follower of Jesus. He was a friend of the apostle Paul. He was a historian. He wasn't an eyewitness to these events, but after the fact, he went back to the eyewitnesses and interviewed them. He most likely interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus, and several other key figures to get his story down to share with a largely um, Roman, non-Jewish audience the story of Jesus. And he talks about that in the first four verses of his book, and then he jumps right into the story. He says in verse 5, 
In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah, and his wife was from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. Okay, question for all of you. Zechariah and Elizabeth, are these good people or bad people? Yeah, these are good people. It says so in the, in the verse I just read. They're, they're righteous in God's sight. They're with, living without blame. Now, that doesn't mean you're, they're perfect. And if you're like, well, Romans says nobody's perfect and all of sin. That's not the point. This is a couple that have given their lives to serving Yahweh. He's a priest. It's his job. And they're, they're faithfully living out the commands of God. But something's wrong in their world. A couple things are wrong in their, in, in, in their world. The first thing maybe you didn't notice, in the days of King Herod of Judea, see, King Herod wasn't the rightful king of God's people. He was a usurper. And the people of God had been conquered by the Roman Empire. Um, if, you, if you remember Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, those guys, well, Herod was a friend of those guys, and, and he got a special job to be king over an area they called Palestine. He wasn't the rightful king. He wasn't a good king, and God's people had been um, oppressed by the Roman government for years and years and years. In fact, God hadn't spoken to his people for 400 years at this point. When you, when you read Malachi in the Old Testament, that's the last thing that God speaks through his prophets, and then it's silence. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth are people living in an oppressed nation, wondering where God is. And to make it worse, they have a personal problem. They don't have any children. And I know for some of us in this room, that's not a foreign idea. I know there are several families here that have struggled with infertility, uh, that have uh, tried and tried and eventually uh, had a child, or still had to, to, had to um, figure out a different way to have a child, and maybe some just haven't been able to have children at all. And infertility is a tough thing. It's a hard road for people who really want kids to walk down. But it's, it's way worse for Elizabeth. Because here's the thing. God's people have been set apart, right? They're, they're special. And part of the way that they're set apart is they're, they were told to train up the next generation to follow Yahweh, to be a set-apart people, and to be a set-apart people in the next generation, and the next generation. And part of that was every good Jewish family was to have children. And they were to propagate their faith through the next generation. And so Elizabeth is feeling the social stigma of not being able to fulfill her basic identity as a child of God. The one thing that she's responsible for to keep the lineage of God's people going, she can't do. And it's a big deal. Think of like the worst social stigma you can think of today. 
Maybe it's like the 40-year-old guy who still lives in his mom's basement and has never made anything of himself. Maybe it's a father who can't hold a job because of his drugs and alcohol addiction. Whatever comes to mind that you just look at and go, man, that's really sad. That's how people looked at Elizabeth. Wow, that's really sad. Wonder what they did for God to treat them that way. It's a huge stigma of being barren in Israel. So this story just starts off with major reasons for doubt. The country is in ruins. They're being oppressed by a foreign army and there's this personal issue in this family that where is God? He has abandoned us. We are childless. God is silent and the enemy is in control. And silence is a major cause of doubt in the Christian life. Uh, Philosopher Michael Rhea writes, God's silence is painful for us. Many believers experience crippling doubt, overwhelming sadness, and ultimate loss of faith as a result of ongoing silence. Many people have been positively damaged by divine silence. David in the Psalms echoes that sentiment in Psalm 13. He says, how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Has anybody in this room ever experienced doubt when you seem to be doing everything that God wants you to do to be faithful? Any, anybody have a, have a hand? Now there's some, right? Like, God, I'm, I'm, I'm living the life I think you want me to live, and I, I feel lost. I don't hear you. What am I supposed to be doing? This is where we find Zechariah and Elizabeth. Look what happens in verse 8. When his division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. And at the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. So Zechariah is a priest. His official job is to serve at the temple, and he's part of, he's got a calendar rotation. There's a couple weeks a year that he gets to serve. And when he gets there, they kind of have a random drawing for what job each priest gets to do. And Zechariah, Luke says, uh, he, he drew the lot that says that you get to into the temple and burn incense before the Lord. You get to worship God through the burning of incense. And so in the midst of this time of national and personal doubt, what are God's people doing? They're worshiping. They're in prayer. All of the people assembled outside are in prayer. And this is This is not our first impulse, is it? When life is hard, when God is silent, we want to check out. God doesn't seem to be satisfying my soul. Maybe if I put in more overtime at work, I will feel more alive. Maybe I just need a jet ski. An affair. Or just a little bit more to drink at night. 
Something to take my mind off my problems and put me into a better place. But that's not what God's people are doing. God's people are in the midst of 400 years of silence. Zechariah is in the midst of personal heartache, and they are worshiping, and they are praying. And this morning, I think we have a list of things that are wrong with our lives, a list of things that are wrong with our nation. Uh, We like to complain about them. It's one of our favorite things. You just, you just start a conversation with somebody and it's instantly like, can you believe what happened in the news today? Or, oh, I was at work and it was so bad. Or my car, or my family, or my kids, my friends, whatever. Like we just lead off with just like, my life is terrible, pity me. But I wonder, do we do anything about these things that bother us so much? John talks Every time he does announcements, he mentions our prayer night on Thursdays. And we, we felt really strongly that we needed to be a people that were more um, devoted to corporate prayer. So we started gathering on Thursday nights. And, and there's, I mean, I, I read things all the time about church. And, and one of the things that's pretty popular is that, like, nobody comes to prayer meetings anymore. That's a, it's a thing of the past. You can't get people together to pray. But I'm convinced that when God's people are joined together in prayer, that's, that's when the work gets done. That's when people get healed. That's when men and women meet Jesus. That's when diseases are conquered and relationships are made whole. And if we are not people that pray, we will miss out on that. If you've never read uh, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by Jim Cimbala, it's a great book. It's the story of his church in New York. But in that book, he says this, He's, he's quoting something that he said to his church. If we call upon the Lord, he has promised in his word to answer, to bring the unsaved to himself, to pour out his spirit among us. If we don't call upon the Lord, he has promised nothing, nothing at all. It's as simple as that. No matter what I preach or what we claim to believe in our heads, the future will depend upon our times of prayer. I think he's right. I think if, if we look around our city, if we look around our nation, if we look around our home and we see things that are broken, the only thing that is going to fix that is when we come to the Lord in prayer and when we do it consistently and when we do it devotedly and wholeheartedly. And so I would just echo John's invitation to Thursday nights. Our prayer meeting is pretty small. Sometimes it's, well, it probably averages about three people. We pray for about an hour and a half. Usually we don't have an agenda. Somebody brings a Bible. Sometimes somebody brings a guitar. We sing a little. We read Psalms. We stand up. We sit down. We lay on the floor. It gets crazy. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah. But uh, it's so powerful. I, I walk away from prayer on Thursday nights going, man, I am so, you know, this is funny. I usually go into prayer on Thursday nights going, man, I don't know if I have time for this. But I leave going, man, I'm so glad I was here today. Because I really believe that that's when God moves. And if we want to see change in the world, it happens when we pray. God's people are praying outside the temple. Zechariah is worshiping inside the temple. Look at verse 11. An angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of their righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. So God moves. The people are praying outside. Zechariah is worshiping inside. And an angel shows up and says, guess what? Good news. Your personal shame will be removed. You're going to have a child. And not just that, that child is going to have a special job. He is going to announce the coming of the king. The one is who is going to rescue your people from darkness is on the way. God has been silent for 400 years and that silent is, silence is broken. And there's a lot about John here that we don't have time to get into, but he's, he's set apart from birth. Uh, he, he, he take, he's given what's called a Nazarite vow. He's, he's not allowed to drink. He probably didn't cut his hair. And he's filled with God's spirit. And he will announce the coming of the king. This is good news. The silence has been broken. The shame has been lifted. The king is on the way. Look at what Zechariah says in verse 18. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel. For I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Do you think Zechariah had been praying for this? Praying for his son, praying for the king, the Messiah to come? Do you think the people outside were praying for this? I think they were. And yet when it, an angel shows up and says, hey, it's going to happen, he goes, really? I'm not so sure. Because... We pray for stuff, but I don't think we always really expect God to listen to us. Keith Nickel, in his commentary on Luke, says, we do not really expect God to intervene in concrete and specific ways into our lives. When God does, we are aghast and flabbergasted. And this is why I think we hedge our bets when we pray. 
Like, I, I find myself doing this all the time. Somebody comes up and says, you know, I've, I've just been given a cancer diagnosis. Will you pray for me? And, I, and yeah, I'll pray for you. And, and I, you know, you lay your hands on somebody and then you go, you know, God, we just want your will to be done in this situation. Um, give the doctors wisdom. And the thing is, like, those, those things aren't untrue. We, I do want God's will to be done. And if there's doctors involved, it would be good for them to be wise. But what do we really want? We really want the cancer to just miraculously disappear. But for some reason, like, I don't want to ask for that because what if it doesn't happen? God's not really going to answer a prayer like that, is he? We tend to believe that God is like off in the universe somewhere, just like generically loving us, but he doesn't really care about what's going on in our lives. And I've, I've really been challenged by this. We, um, we, we bought a new home over the summer and it came with appliances, but the refrigerator that it came with was kind of like an apartment size refrigerator, but it's inset into a piece area of the cabinets for a full-size refrigerator. And so it's kind of an annoying thing. And uh, my wife was like, well, we'll just, we'll take this refrigerator and we'll move it outside into our shed and it'll be like a second refrigerator because we're Americans and we have way too much food. And we'll buy a full-size refrigerator. And so we went to the appliance store and uh, um, one of the things that I love about my wife is she likes interesting things. And so she's like, you know what? All these refrigerators that are stainless steel that have water in the door, I don't like them. I want a white refrigerator with like chrome knurled handles and water on the inside of the door. And so we found one. It was a special order. And we ordered it in July. And then we got a call from Fred's Appliance uh, on November 1st. And they said, Whirlpool decided they're not going to make your refrigerator. Not enough people want them. Would you like one that's stainless steel with water in the front? <laughs> and we said, no. Everybody has a fridge like that. We don't want that fridge. And so then began a, like a spiral of despair in our house over like, we're never going to find a refrigerator. And we pray with our children every night. And one of the things I started doing is I just, I started praying for a refrigerator. I, God... Find us a refrigerator that we really like. And that's such a stupid prayer. <laughs> but I just thought, you know what? I think God cares enough about us and loves us enough that he will answer that prayer. And so we kept calling places and look, and everybody's like, all the manufacturers, they quit making anything that we liked and um, couldn't find anything anywhere. And we finally found this used appliance store in Spokane. And we went there, and we walked in and turned the corner to the refrigerator section. And the very first refrigerator is a glass front white French door refrigerator with knurled chrome handles and water inside. And it's a couple years old, so it was half the price of the one that we ordered. And my wife squealed, and it was great. We bought it. And I, th I think God answered our prayer. <laughs> And, and that might sound really silly, but Jesus describes God as, as a loving father who wants to give good gifts to his children. 
Pete Grieg, in his book on prayer, which we have in the library if you're interested in prayer, it's fantastic. He says, if you only ever pray about big, ugly, gnarly problems that seem onerous and serious enough to warrant divine intervention, you will only very occasionally experience miracles. But when you learn to pray about trivia, you start to notice how many minor miracles are scattered around in the course of an average day. See, being someone that notices when God answers our small prayers gives us faith for when we have big prayers. But Zechariah doubts. He doesn't believe that God is answering his prayer, even though an angel showed up to tell him that God is answering his prayer. And so he says, this, this is impossible. And look how the angel answers. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. I love this. Gabriel doesn't have a list of arguments for Zechariah. He, he doesn't have like, well, what's going to happen is this, this thing's going to happen in, uh, in your wife's body. And there's, we're going to do this weird chemical thing, and, and, I, and we're going to rearrange some cells. And he, do, he doesn't answer Zechariah's question like that. He doesn't give him a list of reasons why he's trustworthy. And I think addressing doubts with reason can be a good thing. Maybe if, if your doubts are based on a misunderstanding of truth, like if a, a, lot of, a lot of college students get into a biology class and they have just an awful professor that wants to ruin their lives, and he tries to communicate to them that science disproves God. Well, if that's the kind of doubt you're wrestling with, there's actually really good reasons why that's not true. And you can use reason to kind of help you through those things. But that's why I don't think Zechariah doubts the mechanics of this promise. Even though he says, I'm an old man and my wife is old too. I think he's doubting God's character. What does Gabriel say? I stand in God's presence. I know what God's like. And I've been sent to tell you what he says. And I think a lot of times when we struggle with doubt, maybe you have some like reasons why you're, you're struggling, but I think a lot of times we're just not pursuing God's presence. We're not, we're not spending our time getting close to him through his word, close to him through a prayer life, being amongst people. How many of our doubts just come from the fact that we just don't know God very well? Like think of, think of this, if you have a, just a really, really stingy friend. Maybe this is somebody that comes to mind who, you know, whenever you go out to lunch, they figure out how to make it so you have to pay. Um, or if, if they volunteer to pay, they're definitely not tipping, so you might as well pay anyway because that's super embarrassing. They have money, but they just don't share it. And then all of a sudden they tell you, hey, guess what? I won the lottery, and I'm going to give you half my money. My guess is you'd think, really? That doesn't sound like you. But what if you have a different friend? A friend who insists on paying when you go out to lunch. A friend who sees people in need and just gives of their own resources over and over and over again and just doesn't even care because I'm just here to give what I have away. 
and they say, hey, I won the lottery and I'm going to give you half the money. Do you have the same doubts about that person? Probably not. You're probably more likely to immediately go, wow, that's so kind and generous of you. Because the way you know someone affects how you feel about how they're going to behave. And I think that's why Gabriel doesn't have a list of reasons for Zechariah. He just says, look, I, I work in the presence of Yahweh. I know what God's like. And you obviously don't. Our doubts, I think, often come from a lack of really understanding the love of our Heavenly Father. Gabriel keeps talking in, in verse 20. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. And when he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. Gabriel says, Zechariah, since you are doubting who God is and his ability to do something for you and for this nation... You don't get to speak until the baby is born. And I, it's easy to read that and be like, Gabriel's just being kind of vindictive. You didn't believe me? You can't talk. You know, just like, it's kind of spiteful. But I don't think that's what's going on. I think Gabriel's saying something really powerful. He's saying, you know what? You're losing the opportunity to share this good news with people. I brought this to you so that you could proclaim it to everyone outside praying. But because you don't believe me, you lost that opportunity. And I wonder sometimes if, if we're not going to trust God, then I, is he going to trust us with his message, with his love and compassion and grace, all these things that we should be cherishing. It's almost as if God is saying, Zechariah, you don't, you don't know me well enough to work for me. Now, the good thing about his silence is he's going to have nine months to think about it. And if you, we're not going to get there, but in, if you turn the page, he has this amazing song, this prophetic word about how great God is when he finally is allowed to speak again. And so even in that, God is gracious with him and, and lets him learn and grow. Look at verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. I think it's really cool that God's working in the world to bring the Messiah results in Elizabeth's personal healing. Like God, God could have his king announced any way he wants, but he finds a family, a woman in need, and says, you know what? I'm going to work 
your personal blessing into my blessing for the nation. Jesus coming into the world isn't just good for the world. It's good for you personally. The coming of the great king is bringing about Elizabeth's personal healing and wholeness. And when we think about that, like the gospel of Jesus coming into the world for the the nations, you know, for God so loved the whole world that he gave his son. And we, we can think about that in a big overarching sense, but it's also a very intimate personal thing. Jesus came for you. Jesus came for me. The broken parts of your life can be healed by Christ as he is making the whole world new. And it might not be the way that you'd think. If you, if you give some more thought to Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're still old, right? They're, they're way past their childbearing years. They should be grandparents right now. And I have to believe that John the Baptist lost his parents at a young age. We don't have that written down, but that's logical. And so God's plan isn't always exactly what we think it should be or want it to be. but he brings good and healing nonetheless. And so my encouragement this morning on this first week of Advent, coming out of a year that has been really hard for all of us, if you're struggling with doubt, pursue his presence. Get to know God better. Have a habit of being in his word. Have a habit of being a person of prayer. Spend time and so much, so much of prayer that is meaningful is spent listening. Listen to the word of God in your heart through his scripture and pursue his presence. Get to know him. Because I think our doubts lose their power when our faith in the person of God grows. So we're going to take communion, like we always do. And the thing about the communion meal is we, t- we talk about this every week, but it's, it's an image of the death of Christ. In this season when we're celebrating the birth of Christ, we're still looking forward to the cross. Jesus, as an adult, goes to the cross as a criminal, as an insurrectionist, but not for anything that he's done. He's put up, he's framed by the religious leaders, but he goes to the cross willingly for me and you to satisfy the wrath of God over the whole world, pay for our sin to give us the opportunity to be adopted into God's family. And as we think about the cross, Jesus' sacrifice is meant to renew the whole world, to bring about new creation. But it's also to save individual people. It's also to save you and me, to invite us to be a part of that new creation. Gabriel says, 
I'm in the presence of God. I know what God is like. The communion meal says, remember the cross, because that is what God is like. Our God pursues weakness to save sinners. That's what our God is like. Eugene Peterson, in his loose translation of the Gospel of Matthew, writes, these are Jesus' words, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. It was Jesus' message. Get to know me. Don't, Don't come into a faith relationship where you're just following rules. But actually get to know who Jesus is. Spend time with him. Take your doubts to him. Learn about him. Begin to understand his character. And I think that will help our doubts melt away. As we start this four weeks of Advent, we want to be people that get to know Jesus. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.